0: Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buker. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buker. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on X, the former Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Rick Bucher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily, but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. All right, as you know, I've been missing an action a little more than usual, and that's because I was under the weather once again. That rarely happens to me. I got not only sick, but I felt like I got the exact same thing about a week and a half after I got better from the last bout. In any case, I'm back, and I'm here. And along those lines, I want to thank Luka Doncic, Devin Booker, Joel Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns, and Minnesota Timberwolves head coach Chris Finch for highlighting a pet peeve of mine when it comes to measuring great performances by statistics or box scores and giving me the topic for this episode. And let me preface this by saying I often fall into the same bucket when I'm arguing a point on TV or I'm writing a story. I'll reference a player's numbers from a game or a playoff series or his averages or shooting percentages and infer that the numbers reflect excellence or greatness or improvement. And yes, I too am enthralled. Catches my attention when a player posts some crazy number in points or rebounds or assists. I'm impressed. And so, I look, I did it with my daughter just the other day. She had a really good game, and I noted that she had 16.6 rebounds, 5 assists, and a 1-point win. Now, her numbers were good, and she did have a good game. But it was when and how she got those numbers, because I, of course, watched the game, and what she was doing that didn't necessarily generate individual statistics. All of that combined, and being in a win, a close win, that's what I was really proud of. That's why I thought that she had a really good game. Now, what I wonder is how many fans and media people, for for that matter, apply the same sort of approach when it comes to watching the NBA or professional sports, whether they truly understand that players and coaches do not measure performances by box scores or statistics. Now, I know that players and coaches use the shorthand of stats as well, but that's all it is, is—a shorthand. And some of it is driven by they will do it in press conferences when they're looking at a box score it's easy it's easy to reference it's a lot harder to get into the details of why a performance was special and especially if you're not sure that the <laughs> that the audience cares or understands so they use conversational references but there's a reason that players when they talk about their respect for guys like Kyrie Irving or the pre-injuries Derrick Rose, those are just the two players who immediately come to mind that you hear players express great reverence for, they don't talk about their stats. They never mention their stats when they're talking about the greatness of those players. Now, when I mentioned players and coaches that do not measure players by their or performances by box scores, I left out GMs. And I did it purposely because there are some now who, I'm told by agents, take a purely analytical approach when it comes to building a roster or at least filling one out. For example, when they're looking for end-of-the-bench guys, they will be in the market for a power forward off the bench who can average five rebounds and six points a game. Or, say, a 3 and D wing who can average two threes a game shooting 35% or better. And they will have a specific salary in mind to pay for that service. That's at least how they approach the agents. They'll say, this is what I'm in the market for. This is what I'm willing to pay. There is no negotiation. There's no consideration of how that player fits the chemistry of the team or his postseason experience or any of that. Or at least those elements don't equate into a bigger paycheck. It's a plug-and-play approach, and that at least when it comes to role players. But even the analytical GMs don't measure great players, cornerstone players, franchise players, strictly by their numbers. If they've been in the NBA for any length of time, they know that a, a player with the ball in his hands the most on any team is going to have pretty good individual numbers and sometimes great individual numbers. Now, I just did a piece, uh, NBA confidential piece for FoxSports.com and the Fox Sports app. You can find it either place on why we might have had the recent splurge of 60 and 70 point individual performances in the last couple weeks um, within a four day span four out of the five 60-plus point performances happened within the same week this season. What I want to explore here is what those scoring performances mean and how to measure them. In the piece, I tried to explain by talking to various scouts and GMs why we might have seen those performances in that cluster. Now, Embiid and Towns in particular gave us a great example of how not all statistical performances are the same and if we go by that it means that we can't use statistical performances alone to define greatness. In the case of Towns, he scored 62 points in a loss to the Charlotte Hornets and Tim coach Chris Finch basically called it a selfish performance. Said he had it going in the first half, but clearly was now gunning for a big number in the second half. And, yes, he had 62 points. He also had seven turnovers and only two assists. Shot a decent percentage, but clearly trying to score 60-plus or whatever he was going for was the priority over actually winning the game. Flip side, Joel Embiid scored 70 in a win, over San Antonio. There was probably some personal agenda going on. They were playing Victor Wimbenyama in the Spurs, and no doubt Embiid was inspired to show the young, new young gun on the block that it's not quite his time yet. But he did it in a win and said afterward that he made a point of telling his teammates, hey, just because I got it going, let's not, if I'm getting doubled, be ready. Let's keep, it, let's keep distributing the ball. So he, at least he gave a voice to playing the right way. And he did it in a win. So uh, look, no matter what, scoring 60-plus points is a remarkable achievement, no, no matter how you slice it. Most players in the NBA, the vast majority of players in the NBA, aren't capable of doing it, much less get the opportunity. But if you are a scorer, you are the primary offensive weapon for your team, and you happen to be playing an inferior opponent, there is opportunity. And while most of the players who have scored 60-plus in a game are either in the Hall of Fame, will be, or will at least be considered for it, that doesn't apply to everyone. Kemba Walker Bradley Beal and Gilbert Arenas are on the list of players who have scored 60 or more in a game, and I don't see any of them, at least at this point, finding their way into the hall. Both Kemba and Bradley got theirs in losses, and even Gilbert's might merit some sort of, I don't know, asterisk, footnote, because while it came in an OT, he scored 16 of his 60 in the extra five minutes. He had 44 points in regulation, but as I said, at least he won. And if we wanna spread this out to 50 point scorers, which is still a big number, still impressive, we're talking about guys like Tony Delk and Antoine Jameson. So that's what I'm not sure I understand about fans who celebrate performances, big performances in losses. I'd say the majority of players don't respect the majority of big performances if they come in a defeat. Th- now there are exceptions. Michael Jordan scored 63 in a double OT playoff loss to the Boston Celtics, and while Jordan took no satisfaction from the performance, Larry Bird said afterward that it was dis- it was God disguised as Michael Jordan. And look, the Bulls were a massive underdog in that series. Jordan was early in his career, tried to single-handedly pull off an upset. There's reasons to believe it was impressive. But it's one thing for an opponent to express respect. And it's something else entirely when the performer takes pride in an individual statistical achievement in a loss. That there are fans and media who now get giddy over, let's say, their favorite player doing something extraordinary in a loss or advertising it as proof that they are great is what really bothers me. It's as if we've lost sight of what matters most, which is winning the damn game. Or at least it should matter the most. I know most people watch sports for entertainment, not to be stewards of the health of of the health of the sport or because, well, I would think they're doing it because they want their team to win. But we know that that has been fractured as well. There's probably more fans of individual players, regardless of where they're playing, than there are followers of a particular team. So maybe that's part of it, is that... They just want to see their team, their, their player, their favorite player do well, regardless of whether it's in a win or not, because they don't care about the team. But it's like continuing to eat at our favorite restaurant and posting rave reviews about it, even after its quality and service falls off. If we accept inferiority or decline, then there's no motivation to improve the product. And I don't honestly, don't know if fans and my media brethren understand this, but we set the bar. We, fans and media, set the bar for what we consider important and valuable, what we consider true greatness. And I'd have to say, of late, we are dropping the bar. We set the bar by, well, with our time, attention and pocketbooks. And we don't, when we don't recognize how today's numbers are being accumulated, when we don't pri- prioritize winning as an indispensable part of being considered great, when we don't take issue with cheap tricks to gin up the game so that it's easier for players to look like they're doing something extraordinary, when our eyeballs tell us it's different, then we are inviting confusion and medi- mediocrity into the game. And we are lowering the standards. So we are allowing how the game is played to deteriorate. And I get that we all have our favorite players. But fandom can't or shouldn't get in the way of wanting the the game to be played at a high standard. Which it is not right now. It is remarkable how much individual skills have improved and understanding how to play the game at a high level has diminished. And if you don't understand the difference between individual skills and knowing how to play the game, essentially how to apply those developed skills to win and play the game as a team at a high level, then you should probably sit out any conversations about the state of the game, what qualifies as greatness, comparing players, or any other similar conversation until you find out what the difference is between individual skills and knowing how to play the game. It's a bit like the controversy surrounding Brock Purdy, quarterback for the 49ers, headed to the Super Bowl, and comments made by former quarterback Cam Newton about Purdy being a game manager, which has been a tag used in most conversations to downgrade a quarterback's contribution to his team's success. At least it has been in the past. A diss, if you will. And Cam has tried to clarify that he did not mean it as an insult, as much as it sounded like one. And I would say, one, I don't think he's been successful in that. And two, I do believe he is using the term to qualify Brock's ability as a quarterback. And this is how I see the matter. Purdy's greatest strengths are his mental toughness, his resilience, and his decision-making. And what seems to have been forgotten is that he did all that he did this season after having a ligament torn in his throwing elbow, the byproduct of getting his arm wrenched while throwing in the middle of a chaotic pocket in the playoffs a year ago against the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't know if someone who hasn't had a sports injury can appreciate this, but having to go back and perform over and over again without hesitation, with full confidence, with full bravado, at full speed, in a situation that caused you great pain and abruptly ended your season and required months of recovery and rehab to get back, that is not easily done. And Brock has done that. Have all of his throws been on point this season? Of course not. Nor should that be expected by someone coming back from his kind of injury. I would say this isn't the same isn't the same as a quarterback coming back from an ankle or knee injury or some other ailment. Yes, those take time and toughness to get past in live action as well. You blow out an ACL, it, it takes any athlete time, to fully be confident and cut without thinking. But those are not like an injury to the very body part that is critical to accurately throwing the football. I'd say an elbow injury is even tougher to get past than a wrist or shoulder injury because it's so vulnerable in the act of throwing. The elbow is just out there in the open, completely unprotected, capable of being whacked from almost any direction that could do serious damage. But back to the game manager label and what it signifies. I get where Cam tried to come from. Game manager has been generally used as a negative qualifier, an insinuation that the quarterback is the beneficiary of the talent around him, that his job and his success is based on just not effing up a good thing or a good team. Now, I see it a little different because I think there are degrees to managing a game. And Brock Purdy happens to manage them at a very high degree. That's why he's able to not be good for half the game and and then end up making enough plays at the end to win it. Now, how is that? Because managing a game, as I see it, comes down to a quarterback's decision-making. What makes Patrick Mahomes so much better than Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson isn't just because he can make spectacular plays or come through in the clutch. It's that he recognizes when he can go off script or try something a little crazy, and the consequence, if it doesn't work, is still relatively low. I would imagine Patrick Mahomes would be a great blackjack player. I'm thinking of the pass he made to Travis Kelsey on a third and long in this game against the Ravens that Mahomes threw on the run. He was about to get hit and Kelsey had to lay flat out to catch the ball. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. It looked like a risky pass, but all that was at risk was whether or not they got the first down, not whether it got picked off, not whether they lost the ball. And it wasn't a play that if executed, wouldn't get the job done. That's what is so deflating about checkdowns when a long gain is needed. That's why there's so much criticism of Kirk Cousins. It's a concession when you do that, that there's no chance of getting the job done and yet you still did something. It's kind of fake. Finding a way to take a shot that could get the job done, but doesn't risk greater consequences is by no means easy, I'm not suggesting that whatsoever. It is a gift and requires a certain degree of mental processing speed, intuition, skill, talent and experience. Mahomes has it. And what's amazing is that Purdy, while still relatively new to the game, relatively inexperienced, and certainly not at the same level in all those departments as Mahomes, has been amazingly good at that too. Generally, look, he's, he's had games where he's thrown picks. So has Mahomes. He's lost games where he's thrown picks. So has Mahomes. But for the most part, especially in really big games, meaningful games, Purdy does not make mistakes that kills his team and then still has the gumption and guts to make the big plays when they need to be made to end up winning the game, to throw someone open. And he, so far, has demonstrated that he's better at it than either Lamar or Allen. And the proof is in where the 49ers have gone when he's under center. Now, he has, by no means, their physical abilities. But what is not appreciated at a position like quarterback is how critical decision-making and vision are to being great. And if you're asking me what I'd prefer to have if I have to choose between a magnificent athlete at QB and a magnificent processor, I will take the latter. I will take a good athlete and a great processor over a great athlete and an okay processor. Because I can put great talent around a QB who knows how to exploit it, whose decision-making I can trust, who is capable of getting to the ball to his playmakers, to my best players, when it needs to be given to them. A QB that makes shaky decisions, no matter how physically impressive he might be or how much talent I have around him, always leaves me vulnerable to pick sixes and fumbles and missed opportunities. And if you're looking for examples of what I mean, just look at the performance by Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens against the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. Now, getting back to basketball, the debate surrounded Jalen Brunson or has surrounded Jalen Brunson, the New York Knicks point guard, along the same lines. Candace Parker from TNT apparently took some heat on social media for saying that the Knicks aren't likely to get past the second round with Brunson leading them. She's not wrong. Brunson isn't physically imposing enough at 6'2 and 190 pounds to be a two-way force and lead a team to a championship as the primary focus. And that is not to take anything away from Brunson or to suggest that he can't be the point guard on a championship-winning team but you've got to put the exact right talent around him to compensate for his shortcomings. You've got to have rim protection. You've got to have enough size and defense in the backcourt and the rest of the floor with him, and you need shooters who can space the floor to allow him to operate. The change in the Knicks since acquiring O.G. Ananobi is an example. And it's not unlike Stephen Curry. I don't know that Stefan could have won championships without the perfect, and I mean perfect compliments in Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and Kevin uh, or Andre Iguodala and Kevin Durant. Now, I believe Brunson, like Curry, has a championship mindset, which is why Brunson was able to win an NCAA title at Villanova. But that wasn't achieved. Without a host of other NBA-level talent around him. He wasn't a one-man band the way Curry was at Davidson. And you saw how far being a one-man band got Curry. It got him pretty far. Surprisingly far. Impressively far. But nowhere near all the way. The equivalent, essentially, of getting to the second round in the NBA. Close to the top? Not at all. And that, my friends, is what we have the power to do to make getting to the top the most important qualifier. My friend and FS1 colleague Nick Wright has used a slick, slick, because he's smart, slick bait and switch to make it seem as if we've changed the narrative to keep Michael Jordan's status as the greatest ever, from going to LeBron James. Nick likes to say, oh, now we've made it about championships or rings. No, it's always been about championships and rings. First and foremost, what it hasn't been is only about championships and rings. Ever which is why Robert Ori and Steve Kerr are never brought up, and how Bill Russell has slipped to the periphery of the conversation. We've expanded our view of what greatness is, but we haven't totally flipped it and certainly haven't suddenly put championships and rings at the top of the priority list being a multi-year champion has always been the first prerequisite to entering the conversation. And then it was, let's drill down to the other elements, the role and contribution and overall importance that a player plays in winning those championships, individual statistics, comprehensive level of talent on the team and the competition, coaching, etc. And I'm, look, A lot of people getting into Jordan played against plumbers and carpenters and all that silly stuff. I was there. I saw it. I do not suppose to know what the competition, what the players were like in the 60s or even the 70s. Pretty much, I try not to have an an opinion about very big subject-type things, outside of what I've experienced, I've witnessed, I've seen, I've covered extensively firsthand. And I've been covering the league extensively since the 90s. So don't tell me about levels of competition and why the game might have been, or the competition might have been inferior back in the day. Where the narrative has changed... And let's be clear, it has been changed by pushing the LeBron as GOAT narrative. Is shifting it to LeBron getting to the finals so many times, 10 times, and being the game's all time leading scorer, and winning titles with three different teams, and a whole host of accomplishments are, granted, unique to LeBron. Never before, never been done before has now been equated to all-time greatness, which can be connected, but isn't necessarily connected. Because gunning to be the all-time leading scorer wasn't something that stars have done through the years. It's simply been a byproduct of chasing championships to the best of their ability. Michael Jordan never set out to be the all-time leading scorer same with winning rings with multiple franchises no one even thought of doing that changing teams was actually something stars avoided being with one franchise your entire career was considered a much bigger badge of honor it meant that you were too valuable to consider moving your entire career but enough about all that my main point is that we as fans and media have to stop giving all great statistical individual performances the same stamp of unqualified greatness, because they do not deserve that. And unless we make the distinction, then chasing numbers is going to be considered valuable. And let's face it, watching a player chase numbers is not entertaining, which is why we watch, right? to be entertained, and to appreciate and witness true greatness. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Before I go, I want to mention my sponsor, the men's fashion brand Mizen and Maine. You can find their catalog at Mizzen, M I Z Z E N A N D M A I N. Dot com, I'm currently on a work trip, and half of my suitcase was mizzen and main gear because mac mixes and matches easily, and if I need to wash anything, I can wash it, I can hang it, and it's ready to go. I don't need an iron. I don't need dry cleaning. I don't need any of that. Uh, I wore a pair of their joggers and one of their T-shirts on the plane. Now, that sounds casual as hell. But their style is so crisp that I walked into a four-star restaurant for dinner after I landed, and I did not look the least bit out of place. Didn't get, a, get in second looks from the hostess or the waiters or the manager or anybody else. And I could not have been more comfortable making that cross-country flight. I've taken up golf, and they've got a great selection for that as well. Use the promo code BUKER, my last name, 35, for a discount and let them know that I sent you. In my next podcast, I feel like we have to talk about the all-star selection process. The more I think about the importance that we give being an all-star historically, the more strongly I feel that we need to fix how we hand out that honor. And I've got a few ideas, and I will share them with you in the next episode. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.